This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Progressive Insurance, where customers can save an average of over $750 when they switch and save. Visit Progressive.com to get your car insurance quote. It only takes about seven minutes. National annual average auto insurance savings by new customers surveyed in 2019. Potential savings will vary. Check it out, Progressive.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, narcissism is something that looms large in our cultural consciousness. We accuse friends and family of being narcissistic, think we observe the quality of politicians and celebrities, and wonder society is becoming more self-absorbed over time. But what is narcissism, really, once you get beyond the pop cultural conception of colloquial buzzword? Well, my guest today will unpack that for us. His name is W. Keith Campbell, and he's a professor of psychology and the author of The New Science of Narcissism. Keith explains that narcissism centers on an antagonistic sense of entitlement and self-importance, that there are actually two types of it, grandiose and vulnerable, and how the latter can actually underlie seeming cases of anxiety and depression. We then discuss what causes someone to become a narcissist, whether narcissism has increased in younger generations, and when narcissism tips over into outright personality disorder. Keith explains how narcissists are attractive early on in a relationship, but lose their shine over time, and how, in a similar manner, narcissists readily emerge as leaders, but then often struggle to hold on to their position and power. We then get into the relationship between narcissism and social media and how to get the benefits of narcissism, which isn't entirely a bad thing, while mitigating its downsides. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash narcissism. All right, Keith Campbell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia. And you spent a lot of your career researching and writing about narcissism. How did that happen? How did you end up, you know, starting psychology and think, I'm going to study narcissism? Yeah, I have been studying narcissism a good 25, 30 years now since graduate school. And and the story isn't, you know, as dramatic as you would think. It wasn't some relationship or bad boss or something. Really, I was interested in basic questions of how people think about themselves and how people overestimate their own sense of worth or their own abilities. And we call these self-enhancement effects in social psychology. So a lot of us do it. We think we're more attractive than we are and more humble than we are. And we sort of say we're taller than we are. And you know, we do a lot of things like this. And so I started studying narcissism initially as a way to get at that sort of basic self-enhancement, understand ego. Why are some people more prone to inflate their egos than other people? Why are some people, you know, hogging credit and other people more humble? So it was really a basic research question at the beginning and it just sort of took off. Well, so the word narcissism gets thrown around a lot in our culture. We accuse people of being narcissists all the time. We might accuse a friend, you're being so narcissistic right now. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a popular idea of what narcissism means. It's sort of, you know, you think a lot about yourself, but as a psychologist and as a researcher, how do you define narcissism? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we we use the word and it usually means something like you're a little selfish, you're being self-centered, you're kind of a jerk, you know, and it's often, you know, my ex-boyfriend was really narcissistic or my boss or whatever. So we use it, but we don't know why. And in psychology, there's these technical or more technical definitions. And there's really a few different ways to think about narcissism. So the first way is as a personality trait, meaning We all have some level of narcissism. Some of us are relatively high. Some of us are relatively low. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. And in terms of that trait of narcissism, it has a couple different forms or faces. What most people that are listening are familiar with is grandiose narcissism. So it's this this combination of sort of, I have a sense of entitlement. I'm important. I'm better than you. I'm attractive. But I'm also confident and outgoing and driven. I want to be a leader. I'm really a likable person when you meet me because of my energy and confidence. So it's this more, it's the kind of narcissism we see with, you know, actors or politicians, the Tony Stark kind of narcissism. And this other phase of narcissism shares this sense of entitlement and self-importance, but is much more insecure and vulnerable and easily threatened. And we call this the vulnerable form of narcissism or vulnerable narcissism. And these are folks that are 
sort of think they're really important, but don't do much. They're a little more introverted. They have a little lower self-esteem. They end up in therapy more. They don't end up running the world. They end up sort of seeking help. And it's a different form. So we have those two basic traits of narcissism, vulnerable and grandiose. And then to make it even more confusing, there is a clinical or psychiatric disorder known as narcissistic personality disorder or NPD, which is an extreme form of narcissism that is grandiose, but also with some vulnerability. And when that becomes so extreme, it messes up your life and in significantly and clinically significant ways, it can be diagnosed as a disorder and treated. And that's relatively rare, like one or 2% of the population. Gotcha. And I'd like to dig in more into narcissistic personality disorder, because you see a lot in the popular culture about that as well. Mm -hmm. And you've written a lot about that. So I think a thing to point out is narcissism is a personality trait. It's not a mood. And that's something people often confuse. They kind of throw in these mental health terms, narcissism, depression, anxiety, but narcissism, like depression and anxiety is about mood. Narcissism is about personality. Yeah, absolutely. These are traits, meaning this is sort of how you are. And the way we think about a trait, it's the way you are across time. You know, you're this way now, you're going to be this way in a few years and also across situations. So the way you are at work and the way you are at home, if you're kind of consistent. So people are narcissistic, tend to be narcissistic over time. If you're just narcissistic this afternoon, I think, well, maybe you got into the whiskey and cocaine or something. And if you're narcissistic across situations, it makes sense. If you're only narcissistic at your, you know, at your workplace, but not at home, maybe that's just a job requirement. So to be a personality trait, it has to be sort of general in your life. Okay. So narcissism is a, is a personality trait, but it's a, it's a personality trait made up of other personality traits. Absolutely. And that's really true of a lot of these more, it's a complex trait and it has components of it of more general traits, which I'm happy to talk about if you want. Yeah, talk, it, talk it, about it, this. I think, I think most people are familiar with the big five. Mm. But for those who aren't, what are the big five personality yeah. traits and which of those make up narcissism? Yeah, so the big five personality traits are what happen when you look at all the potential personality traits that we have. And, and we can find those in, in dictionaries or thesauruses. And you kind of go, well, let's put those together. How many are there really? And you go, well, there's about five that kind of hang together well. And those five are easily remembered because they spell ocean or canoe. If you spell ocean, which is my preferred way, the, the first of the big five traits is openness to experience. And this is a combination of being sort of creative and interested in ideas and philosophy. So a lot of people in academics and philosophy really high in openness, a lot of artists. The next is conscientiousness, which is the trait most associated with work and discipline. And it's made up of sort of discipline and organization, but also industriousness and work ethic. The third of the big five, the E, is extroversion. And this is one most people are familiar with, meaning sociability, like extroverts like to go out to parties and things. But it also means drive and ambition. Sort of leaders are very extroverted. And this extroversion piece is what you see with grandiose narcissism. That's that sort of drive. And, and this is why grandiose narcissists are likable is the extroversion. The next in the ocean is A for agreeableness. And agreeableness is a combination of really kind of be, being polite, following rules, and also being compassionate and kind. And this is something you see with narcissism as well. It's really core to narcissism and a lot of the more toxic traits, but reversed. So what we see with narcissism and psychopathy and other dark traits is high antagonism or low agreeableness. And, and the final trait in the big five is neuroticism, which Sounds bad, but really neuroticism is a combination of anxiety, depression, some hostility. And that's what you see with vulnerable narcissists, a lot of neuroticism. So if you take those big five together and you want to understand grandiose narcissism, you take some antagonism, somebody who's sort of self-centered and mean and entitled, but you take that person and say, and you're also really extroverted and driven and charming, and that's your grandiose narcissist. You take that same antagonism and maybe a little more suspiciousness and hostility because of vulnerability, and you make that person neurotic, anxious, 
insecure, and that's vulnerable narcissism. So that's kind of how you put it together with the with the big five traits. And you mentioned earlier that vulnerable narcissists are more likely to end up in therapy. Is it because of the the, the neuroticism aspect of it? A- absolutely. And and when you talk to therapists, what happens is they say, yeah, you you have a, a, a client come in and and they have symptoms of you know ah, I'm kind of depressed, things aren't going my way, you know the, the world doesn't seem fair, and you go, oh, you're de- you know you seem like an anxious, depressed person. And you dig in a little bit and the person also says, well, I'm really smarter than everybody else. And I should be really running the show. And a lot of other things that are hard to see in somebody who's depressed. So sometimes vulnerable narcissism is referred to as covert narcissism because it's narcissism that's really hard to see until you press. On the surface, it looks like somebody who's sort of anxious and you know, George Costanza is the example, you know, we used to give in the old <laughs> days or the comic book guy from The Simpsons. But somebody on the surface who seems kind of, you know, weak and neurotic, but inside really wants power and status. When someone goes to therapy and they present, say, as like a depressive, like how do how do clinicians diagnose like, oh, you actually, this is narcissism. What does that look like for the di- diagnostics of narcissism? Is it, is it pretty difficult to do? Yeah, it's... I, I want to be clear, I'm not a, a clinician, so this is just reading and talking to people. What seems to happen is it takes a while to, to dig to dig up. You don't really notice it. And, after, and in different conversations, you start hitting triggers. So, oh, this is what makes you depressed. Why did you get depressed? Well, I was disrespected. Well, why were you disrespected? Well, people didn't pay attention to me. Did you do anything? Well, no, they should have noticed me. So. An example of something like this would be in the um, oh the Elliot shootings in Santa Barbara, where he asks the girl out, she doesn't say anything back, and he goes, "I was rejected by that girl. I'm going to take revenge." So it's a very vulnerable thing to do. Most of us, you know, you go, "Hey, go out with me." Somebody doesn't say anything. You go, "Well, they probably didn't hear me," <laughs> you know. And but if you're more vulnerable and insecure, you you assume people are out to get you. They're disrespecting you, sliding you. And when a therapist starts seeing that kind of behavior, they go, "Okay, there's some ego involvement in this depression. It's not just I'm a bad person. It's like I'm a good person who's not getting the respect they deserve." If that made sense, yeah, that makes sense. What about grandiose narcissism? I mean, I guess these they're they're the opposite. They have like a, a thicker skin. They don't. Yes. Yes. Thicker skin. They sometimes call them thick and thin skin narcissists. With grandiose narcissism, it's often not seen at first because you meet people who are really confident and extroverted and likable. And if you meet people like this in a social situation or in public, like in performance, your initial response is, this is a really confident person I really like. They're a good person. And where you start seeing the grandiosity is over time when there's options for that person to do something that's warm or loving or, you know, trust, you know, you have a position where you have to trust them and it turns out, well, they're not that trustworthy or really they don't, they don't care that much about me. They care more about themselves or they're not as interested in me as I am in them. So what you see over time is you see that lack of empathy, that self-centeredness, but it takes a little time. Uh, often it takes a little time because you like the grandiosity at first. Do we know what causes narcissism? Like why are some people more narcissistic than others? Yes. And it's a, it's a combination. So with personality, what we see is a lot of us are genetics and I'm talking about 50%, maybe a little more is heritable in any of our traits. So it, it comes from our ancestry doesn't mean if your parents are narcissists, you're doomed to be a narcissist or anything, but there is that genetic sort of association. Parenting matters, but it doesn't matter as much as most people think. With grandiose narcissists, you see parents that said, hey, you're special, put put the kid on a pedestal, we're very permissive. And with vulnerable narcissists, you see the parenting that you see with a lot of you know, more negative psychological outcomes. So you see parents who are more cold and abusive that are, you know, a little more, a little traumatic, more traumatic for the kid. And the other piece with narcissism is what we call non-shared family environment in the research, but really it's just the random stuff that happens to you growing up. So you grow up and maybe one kid ends up 
you know, with a bunch of really nice friends and a nice group and develops really warm and loving relationships. And another group ends up with a little more high status, competitive group of friends and becomes a little more self-promoting and, and, and self-centered just to fit in with the friend group. And that leads to more narcissism later on. So it's, a, it's complex. There's no single path, but there are some things that we know lead to it. Well, you also, in the book, you mentioned culture can also have an influence as well. I think the comparison between Eastern and Western cultures, where Western cultures tend to be more narcissistic compared to Eastern cultures? Oh, oh, for sure. There, there are cultural differences across cultures. So it's sort of that classic, you know, East and West difference. And you see that at the continent level, they even have data looking at East and West Germany, you know, before and after the breakup, where you saw lower narcissism in East Germany that was communist versus West Germany. Another thing you see culturally is the shift towards cities, smaller family sizes, more competitive workplaces. And we see that in China pretty clearly, but but some data in the U.S. as well, that as, as societies become more urbanized, we have smaller families, less long-term trusting relationships. Everybody's hustling to build a brand, to get attention, to fight their way through the economic system. There's just more pull for narcissism. And there's also differences across generations as well. I mean, you, a couple of years ago, actually more than a couple of years ago, I think it was a decade ago, you uh, wrote a book with Gene Twinge, The Narcissism Epidemic, talking about the increase we're seeing in narcissism. Tell us about that. I mean, what is the state of narcissism? Is there, can we see a difference in narcissism from one generation to the next? Yes. And it's unfortunately, well, fortunately or not, it's more complicated. So Gene and I wrote the, the narcissism epidemic in 08, I think, or 09, is right before the great financial crisis. And what we had was this, it was kind of the, the height of the Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, narcissistic, grandiose era. And we found real increases in narcissism in college students, you know, from the 80s to then. And what happened since then is we had the great financial crisis kick in and the job market collapse. And we saw narcissism start to drop with a lot of young people. They just didn't. I mean, I think vulnerable narcissism has gone up. I don't have really good data on that. But the grandiose narcissism seems to have gone down because of the job market in large parts. And right now with the pandemic, it's really hard to know what's going on. We're seeing lots of change, you know, mental health decreases, lack of trust in society. So it's hard to know what's going on in this cultural stew. But in general, more individualistic societies, more low trust societies are going to get more narcissism. I'm curious as a, as a researcher, how do you figure that stuff out? Like, how do you figure out narcissism on a on a scale that large? Like, what do you? It's yeah, it's really challenging because it's how do you find data? So what we did was we would look at every single person who'd measured narcissism. We get the mean scores and we collect those in what we call a cross-temporal meta-analysis, which is a fancy way of saying is we're looking at all the studies across time and we'd see if those means are increasing or decreasing. Ideally, what you have is you have these you know, national data sets that, that have these data, but we just don't have that for narcissism. So we have to go in and we look at it. And then if you want to look at things like narcissism culturally, which is a little different question, you have to figure out what to look at. We look at things like, you know, pot, you know, what people are naming their children, you know, what are people buying? There's a lot of other things you can look at. Yeah. I've heard song lyrics is one thing you can look at, like the instances of I in song lyrics yeah. have gone up and then the instances of you have gone down. Yes. Yeah, song lyrics, books. There's lots of things that have changed. And a lot of those in our society are in the direction of individualism. We're just in a, we're in a very individualistic society right now. Okay. So let's recap. I think it's, we did a good breakdown broadly of what narcissism is. It's a personality trait. Everyone is narcissistic to some extent or another. You might be narcissistic in some instances, but not in others. There's two types of narcissism. There's the grandiose narcissism, which I think everyone is familiar with. And I think that's kind of the popular idea of what a narcissist is. But there's also that vulnerable narcissist where they think they're the center of the world, but they don't really do anything to promote themselves, but they just feel like People are, like they're, they feel like the world is obligated to meet their needs and just know about it, and they get really upset when that doesn't happen. Would that be a fair? Yes, slighted, and that's that vulnerability piece. It's like they're easily threatened because uh, 
they, they they have they think the world is they think the world owes them something, but they haven't been out there fighting enough to have a thick skin. Okay, so uh, that's a personality trait. Everyone can experience that to some extent or another. But then you mentioned earlier that there is a clinical diagnosis called narcissistic personality disorder. So when does narcissism tip over into a disorder and how do psychologists figure that out? Yes. So personality is designed to be ideally sort of flexible. So I have one personality when I'm at work, maybe I have to be more directive. I have to be an authority. I'm in charge. I might have another personality when I'm with my kids. It's not totally different, but I'm going to, I'm going to, my it's going to go up and down. I'm going to be flexible depending on my, my environment. Well, what happens with personality with some people is it can be, it can get sort of extreme and it can be inflexible so that my narcissism, when I'm at work, it's like, Hey, let's just talk about me when I'm with my wife. I'm like, yeah, I hear, I hear that, but let's talk about my day. When I'm with my kids, I'm like, you know what? I'd love to pick you up, honey, but I've got the golf clubs in the back of the Mercedes and I just don't have room for you. And maybe you can just take an Uber to the birthday party. And so what happens is your own ego, because it's so extreme and it's not flexible enough, it starts to interfere with your life. So then what a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist has to do is say, well, is this really messing you up in a couple different ways? And one of the ways narcissism really seems to affect people is relationships. So your narcissism, you might feel good interpersonally, you might not be depressed, but your, your wife or your husband might be suffering. Your kids might be suffering. Your, your employees might be suffering. So one issue is your relationships could be a problem. And so narcissism is implicated in a lot of divorce. It could be that you're making poor decisions at work because you won't take feedback. So you think you're so smart. People are saying you're making a mistake and you're like, no, I'm in charge here. Or you want the opportunity for glory and you take risks. So it's destroying your work. So if a clinician says, you know, it's messing you up in a couple areas, it's extreme and inflexible. You've been this way for a long time. It's not just, you know, some drug you're on. It's not a ta- It's not a brain tumor. It, it's a personality disorder and let's start to treat it. So that that's the process. And that's tricky because with a lot of mental health diagnoses like depression, the cue is like, is this impairing your life? That's how if like if sadness is impairing your life to like over a long period of time. But it sounds like narcissism, it could be like the narcissist's life isn't being impaired, but other people around them, it, their, their life's miserable. Yes. And it, and it's has it, the other set of disorders that's somewhat similar are addictive disorders where you can have people with addictions and say, you know, it's sort of working for me, but other people are suffering. But yeah, it's set up in a bad way in terms of treatment seeking. And this is a challenge. So if I'm narcissistic and the people really suffering from my narcissism are my kids, when I go into therapy and, and it gets challenging and the therapist is like, or the psychiatrist is like, dude, let's start thinking about who you really are. I go, you know what? I'm out of here. I don't want to do this. And so that is the challenge with with narcissism and psychotherapy is they just won't stick with it because they're not suffering enough. Yeah. Or even just getting into therapy. Like, how do you, like, you've, we, you've got a problem. Like, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of that defensiveness. I'm not the problem. You, everyone else is the problem. So it's hard to get people into therapy who are narcissistic. It's hard to, it's hard to keep them in therapy because the nature of the disorder is the person suffering is often not the narcissist. Or if they are, it's sort of they're suffering and, you know, it's a second order effects of their own egos. It's not the first order effects. Gotcha. So, okay. And just to be clear, I think it's an important distinction. Narcissistic personality disorder is a clinical diagnosis. Like you can't just accuse someone of narcissistic personality disorder willy-nilly. Like this is something that has to be probably diagnosed by an expert. Yes, it should be diagnosed. And I don't, I don't go around labeling people with NPD. I, you know, you, you, there's processes for doing this technically. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that goes for any type of mental health issue, mm-hmm. like ADHD, depression, anxiety. You might you might think you have it. You'd always go find to make sure you do from an expert. And especially, and you know, the, the challenge you and you mentioned this earlier is a lot of these these disorders are also normal conditions. So if somebody says, "Dude, I'm really anxious," well, does that mean I'm anxious, or does that mean I have generalized anxiety disorder? 
man, I'm scared of the snakes. <laughs> am, I, am I scared of snakes like a normal person or do I have a snake phobia? So a lot of these conditions kind of ride a line between normal and you know psychiatric. And it's not a very clear line in a lot of cases. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Valentine's Day is coming up, and if you're looking for a gift for that special someone in your life, check out Urban Stems. Urban Stems delivers modern bouquets, unique gifts, and stylish plants next day nationwide. They make it a priority to work directly with Rainforest Alliance certified farms and believe that a hands-on approach is the best way to guarantee only the freshest flowers are picked every day. Their Valentine's Day collection is curated with romance and friendship in mind. Every bouquet is designed in-house and on-trend. Every Urban Stems delivery includes a personalized note for your recipient, thoughtfully designed packaging, and a 100% happiness guarantee. Their bouquets range in flower variety from seasonal favorites like lilies and tulips to the go-to favorites like roses. Urban Stems also offers dried bouquets for a long-lasting unique gift for Valentine's Day. Take your pick from a variety of bouquets, plants, gifts, and floral subscription options at urbanstems.com. Shop at urbanstems.com and use promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase plus free shipping. That's urbanstems.com, promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase and free shipping. Are you ready to establish your online presence but not sure where to start? Look no further than Squarespace. Squarespace empowers the dreamers, makers, and doers of the world by providing the tools they need to bring their creative ideas to life. On Squarespace's dynamic all-in-one platform, you can build a website, claim a domain, sell online, and market your brand. Squarespace's products combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your online presence. If you're intimidated by the idea of launching your ideas in the world, Squarespace's templates take out all the guesswork and make it seamless. And once you're out there, you can use Squarespace's analytics to gain powerful insights about your site. And if you ever have questions, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help you. I've used Squarespace over the years for one-off projects when I need to get a website up fast. Super easy, got it done in like 10 minutes. It's time to turn your dreams into reality. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com manliness and code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. So the first part of the book, you describe narcissism. Then the rest of the book, you discuss kind of its effects on different aspects of our lives. We mentioned relationships. That seems like narcissism has the biggest impact on relationships. Let's dig deeper in there. What does the research say about narcissism and relationships? Well, it's, it's complex in an interesting way. So what you find is that the effect of narcissism and relationships is different at the early stages than in the committed stages. So in early parts of relationships, let's say you're dating, typical American dating relationships with young people, people who are narcissistic are going to be attractive when you first meet them. They're going to be likable. They're likable in 30-second you know, movie clips. They're going to seem confident, and they're going to be very effective at dating. They're going to have more dates. They're going to have more connections on social media. They're going to, have, you know, they're going to date more quickly. They get lots of things. So in the beginning of relationships, narcissism is really good for starting relationships. And when people start relationships with grandiose narcissists, they report that those relationships are kind of fun at first because they're exciting. So what happens, though, over time is that relationships, and this isn't always the case, but often what people want is they want a more committed or emotionally intimate relationship. And so there's a sort of a transition in relationships from, hey, we're having fun, this is dating, to, hey, let's get to know each other, let's have something more committed, maybe let's talk about something more permanent. In that transition, narcissism falls apart, because what you see with narcissism is not so much an interest in committed or warm or empathetic relationships, but instead you see the narcissist maybe being a little bit unfaithful, being a little uncontrolled, a little bit controlling, being a little materialistic treating you like a prop or a trophy. You see a lot of negative behaviors come up over time, sometimes abuse, sometimes violence. So the relationships often will start off really strong with grandiose narcissists, but over time they, they tend to fall apart and they get really, really bad. So that there's just a very interesting pattern. And what happens is people end up dating lots of narcissists because of this, or some people do, and it, and it can be really bad. So that's the short version, I think. Medium short version. Yeah, that's interesting. On the, the grandiose narcissist, you you also highlight research that they typically tend to be more attractive physically because they invest more in their physical attractiveness. They're going to 
buy nice clothes, work out, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great point. There's some really interesting research where they, you know, they they did these studies like, ah, oh, these these grandiose narcissists, and these are men and women are, are more attractive. Why is it? And uh, one of my colleagues did a study where he brought people in and had them, you know, shave their beards, take their makeup off, and just did just normal facial shots. You can't see any difference. It's just people are narcissistic, want to be attractive. They want the they want to be attracted, you know, attract people attracted to them, and they'll put effort into it, and it, and it's effective. Right, but the, the issue is later on the person in the relation discovers, well, this person doesn't really think too much about me, and this is not going to go anywhere. Right. If your job as the narcissist partner is to make the narcissist look good, that can be exciting for a little while, but it gets boring very quickly. Well, what about vulnerable narcissist in relationship? What does that look like? It's a it's a different deal because vulnerable narcissists are not necessarily attractive. They're not really attractive people as a rule because they're well again neurotic, a little neurotic, well introverted. It's not a it's not an attractive thing. What happens, and this is less research, so it's a little bit, this is just from talking to people, as you start a relationship, sometimes it's a caregiving relationship where I'm dating this person, they're a little weak, they're a little neurotic, maybe I'm taking care of them. And I assume once I take care of them, they will be more grateful and loving to me. So I date somebody who's a vulnerable narcissist, I'm like really nice to them. I go, well, they're going to be less depressed pretty soon, and then we're going to be close. Well, once they're less depressed, it turns out they're kind of a narcissistic jerk. So you get rid of the neuroticism, but you haven't taken care of the the disagreeableness. And now you have kind of a jerk as a partner. Okay. So, so yeah. So it sounds like narcissism in relationships, it could be good in the beginning, but slowly fades away. It's not, it, yeah, it's not a good recipe. I, I said this once, I said, except on a summer fling. And then it was a newspaper headline that said, <laughs> you know, Dr. Campbell tells people to have flings with narcissists. So I'm not saying that. Yeah, I'm just saying life is complicated. If you're going to have a relationship with a narcissist, make sure it's short term and it's on summer over summer. What about narcissism and leadership? What does the research say there? That's another really complicated area. And narcissism, again, grandiose narcissism, seems to really fit with with leadership. And we see this in a lot of research now. We see that narcissists are good at emerging as leaders, which means that, hey, if we have a group of, you know, 10 people, the narcissist is more likely to become the leader. And this works at, you know, works in family businesses. It works in companies. We just see the people who are more, it looks, works in assessment centers, you know, with smart people looking for leaders. People who are grandiose will gravitate towards leadership because they want it and they seem confident. So you find narcissists emerge as leaders. The challenge is how are narcissists once they get there? And their narcissism is really a double-edged sword. People who are narcissistic can do big, risky things. They tend to take public risks. When those risks as leaders work and and they can take credit for it, everyone thinks they're a hero. And when those risks fail, they try to blame other people and they look really bad. And people say, why were you so stupid to believe that Theranos woman? So it really depends on the outcome, but what you see is this big risk-taking and, and it can go either way, but very volatile leadership typically with, with more grandiose leaders. Now, we had uh, Brad Owens on the podcast, but he's a uh, professor of business ethics at BYU, and he, he's done a lot of research on narcissism and humility and leadership, and I think he's, he found the same thing. Narcissists tend to emerge as leaders faster, but in the long run, they do poorly as leaders because of those the grandiosity and whatnot. Yes. The only, the exception to that is if they can every once in a while, they'll just hit it out of the park. So I can tell you a hundred stories of narcissists who were brought in and destroyed everything and were then drummed out. And, but every once in a while they can, they can just get lucky and then they just write books about it. I mean, there's a great, <laughs> one of the great books on uh, Larry Ellison is called the, the, the difference between God and Larry Ellison is the title of the book, something like that. And then the subtitle is, you know, God doesn't think he's Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle should have mentioned that, but he's a very narcissistic character and he's done extremely well 
as a business person and doesn't seem like a very likable guy, but I bet I'd have a great time hanging out with this, you know, collection of whatever he's going to show me. So it can work either way. It's not always bad, but it, it can go really bad. And humility is something I would rather have in a leader. And what is, what about vulnerable narcissism and leadership? Do they typically emerge as leaders or no, they're just going to be kind of wallowing there. Like I would, I should be the leader, but I, no one, no one recognizes me. Yes, you're 100% right. And in, and when they do get into leadership, vulnerability is a very bad trait in a leader because leaders who don't have thick skin will get, you know, because once you're a leader, everyone's taking shots at you. It's just like being famous. It's just like, you know, anybody who puts their head out there is going to have people taking shots at it. And vulnerable leaders who have power they can be real dangerous because when their ego gets wounded, they can they can lash out and in, in thoughtless ways and hurt a lot of people. So I think vulnerability to leaders are a real mistake. I can deal with, you know, the the standard, you know, grandiose narcissist psychopaths we have, but the vulnerability, they can be dangerous in, in unpredictable ways, not just predictable ways. So I think a lot of us, we typically associate the increase in narcissism with social media. That's kind of, it feels like that, okay, this we have this yeah. platform where it, it encourages self-promotion. What does the research act say about narcissism in social media? It's it's one of those things that's a little bit complicated. At first, I thought, well, everybody gets on social media, it's going to become more narcissistic. And maybe that happened a little bit, but it doesn't seem that way. What it seems to be are that people who are narcissistic or grandiose do very well on social media. They have more friends on Facebook, more followers on Twitter. They just tend to have bigger social media networks on all the accounts. So if you open up your social media account, look at all your people you're following, you're going to see more narcissism than really exists. And social media seems to be good at reinforcing narcissism. So people who are narcissistic can use social media to get attention, and that will make their narcissism survive or inflate or whatever. So it's a way of maintaining narcissism. But it doesn't seem to be making narcissists. It, in fact, it seems to make people a little bit depressed, but that's another topic. It seems more it's a tool for people who are narcissistic to self-promote, and it works well for them. Okay, so that, so it's, it's social media self-selects for narcissists, basically. That's why it seems like everyone's yes. a narcissist. Okay. Yes. And I, I thought it was interesting, some of the the research being done right now, it's, it's, again, it's kind of speculative right now, but it's interesting that you can actually look at someone's social media postings and figure out if they're higher on narcissism than others. Like the, the amount of selfies being taken is possibly a, a, a sign that someone's narcissistic. Yeah, it's really, it, it's really interesting. So, you know, we started, I started doing this with a student and maybe it's almost been 10 years ago. And we were doing back in the day was we'd look at student, this is when undergraduates had Facebook and no one else had social media. And we'd look at their Facebook pages and code them. And we'd use that to predict narcissism. We're like, yeah, we could do this pretty well. It's, it was very laborious and old fashioned. And about three or four years ago, people started using more machine learning to start scraping websites and using things like likes of products or other information on there to predict personality. Some of this, you you know, if you've heard about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, that's what they were doing. And that turns out to work pretty well, but not great. So you can detect narcissism, you know, maybe 0.2, 0.3 correlations from some sort of machine learning would be my guess, but it's not perfect and it's not a secret pathway into people's lives, if that makes sense. It's not like a window into their soul. No, yeah, that makes sense. And one of the you know, t- things that came out of that research is that narcissists, not only do they take more selfies, but they actually like when other people take selfies and post selfies which is interesting because like, you know, when I see someone post a selfie, it kind of makes me feel like I, I've experienced some sort of like secondhand embarrassment. I'm like, wow, that's, why would you, but there's people yeah. who really are really into that. They're like, yeah, that's great. Keep doing that. Yeah. I mean, that's where I love personality because people are just wired differently. And when I would take selfies, I, it would, it would horrify me. I'm like, I can't, I mean, who puts a picture of themselves? This is so wrong. It was just, just how I, I wasn't raised that way. And, and I'm so, I'm sort of neurotic and I'm like, God, I look so horrible in this picture. I couldn't, couldn't do it. People are narcissistic. It's pretty easy. 
It's like, hey, I look good. Let's look at everyone else look good. And, you know, I'll look good alone. I'll do more selfies with my own body. So it's more comfort in doing it. And, and they're cool with it. Yeah. So people are just different. Yeah. People are like, I, uh, I think I've taken one selfie, like where I've actually held the camera and like, t- <laughs> and it made me, and I never wanted to do it again. So if I have to take a picture, I hand the camera to someone else. Like, you take the picture. And for, and, and it's funny whenever I see people take selfies in public, I, I look away. It's yeah. like, like, it, like we're in like the gym, the, the locker room, like, okay, this is some kind of weird private experience and I shouldn't be looking at it. And yes. That's just me. That's it's you're from a from a different culture and you're wired a little differently. And if you're from the modern, you know, digital culture and you were a little narcissistic, you think like, God, I am so grateful to be born in the era where I could take pictures of myself all the time. Imagine those poor, you know, those poor Gen X kids that didn't even have cameras. Uh, so we so we talk about grandiose narcissism in social media. Do we know how vulnerable narcissists use social media? We have data on it, and it's a lot less data. So it's not as clear. And what it looks like is there's a lot more struggle and insecurity, sort of like, you know, we were just talking about people are vulnerable, don't feel as they want to put the selfies out there. They want to get liked, but they don't feel really good about it. So they spend more time waffling back and forth. And it's not necessarily a fun, a fun process. And you can talk to some Instagram stars. I don't know, maybe you have that you look at their Instagram and you're like, oh my God, this person must be the most confident. They just knocked this shot off, just hanging in Dubai. And when you talk to them, it turns out they spent a day doing that shot. They they didn't sleep for a day or two worried about how they look. So there's a lot of vulnerability, but you don't pick it up in the pictures. Yeah, those are some of my favorite articles that come out where you have some journalist that goes into these like influencer houses mm-hmm. where they all live together and kind of see what it's like. And yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more going on than you think. A lot of anxiety and neuroticism and, and just being anxious about how things are going to be received. And they spend a lot of time on this stuff. Yeah. I think that the real, the real celebrity culture, and I was just up in I was just up doing a celebrity podcast last week in LA. It was really fun, but that culture, there's a lot of anxiety about performance because it's so competitive you know, it's just so brutally competitive that it's not as fun as it looks. And another related to this idea of uh, narcissism and digital technology, narcissism can also help explain the phenomenon of trolling. How can narcissism help uh, help us understand that? Oh, yeah. So trolling, you know, the idea on social media is just, you know, pointing out bait to see if you can get people to get upset or riled up about People looked at that with trolling and other dark traits. And the traits that really seem to predict trolling are narcissism, some psychopathy, and sadism, which is basically just, I like to, I enjoy watching people suffer. So there's some narcissism in in trolling, and there's also just some plain old meanness. But it's not a, it's not a, it's not people, it's not fun love. It's not a loving, a thing loving people do. It's It's a little bit darker. And is that situational? Like, does that only happen on social media or is this carry over to other aspects of life because they are personality traits? These things generally will carry across situations because they are traits, but they'll come out in different forms. And, you know, somebody who's a great troll would be, you know, somebody like Elon Musk, who's, who comes across as a, you know, narcissistic, but he's a, he comes across as also what we call a trickster figure, you know, a guy who's kind of a, a joker or a trickster. And those figures are interesting ones in that they're often very creative. So they, they, they can seem narcissistic, but they're also kind of interesting and creative and not enough research on that type of troll. So listening to you speak about narcissism, I, I think we typically focus on the downsides. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But I mean, it does sound like there's some upsides to being narcissistic on occasion. In the realm of relationships, if you spend more time on how you present yourself and you put yourself out there more, you're more likely to get in a relationship or even like in the job hunt, right? You have to put yourself out there to, to be considered for a, a promotion or a raise or something. So how can you use, get the benefits of narcissism without the downsides? Yeah, I try to look at narcissism. And I try to look at most things as a trade-off because that's how nature is. If something was just always bad all the time, we just wouldn't really have it so much. So most of our personality traits have some benefits at some point and narcissism is no exception. And I think 
narcissism works really well in dating. It works really well in public speaking, works really well on leadership, works really well on self-promotion, maybe marketing, maybe competition, you know, walking into a boxing match. So what you can do is you say, well, let's look at the narcissist doing that. And maybe I can use some of that swagger, but I'll just do it in limited domain. So maybe I'll have swagger when I walk into the boxing, you know, boxing ring, but I'm not going to carry that home with my kids. Or maybe I'll have the confidence when I walk on stage instead of going, oh, I'm going to fail. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm gonna, I got this one and try to feel really positive about it and just see how it goes. So I think there's a lot to learn from watching, especially the more grandiose the more grandiose people and how they can really succeed in life and, and imitating some of that stuff, but not, not starting to believe your own hype because you're just not that big of a deal. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm more narcissistic than I need to be and it is affecting my relationships. We're not talking uh, narcissistic personality disorder. We're just talking you're higher in narcissism than you like and you're seeing that it's affecting your relationships. Is it possible to tamp that down? Yes. I think one thing we've learned in, in personality science in the last 10 years, I think very clearly is that personality can change. And to change, you need to identify what it is you want to change and then, and then make an effort over time. What I would suggest to people is say, look, I'm a little narcissistic. I would say, what is it specifically that's really messing you up? Is it, is it the way you treat your, you know, is the way you treat your your relationship partner? Is it something at work? Is it the way you relate to people? And figure out what that is and say, look, I'm going to address that one specific behavior. You don't have to change your whole personality. Don't just try to do one thing. So for one example I have, and I'm not super narcissistic, but I'm really extroverted and I have a tendency to talk over people. I'll go to conferences and I'll start talking. I'll get real excited and just drown people out. And so I go, well, this is my tendency. I look a little bit self-centered because I am. So I'm going to really just, every time I talk to people, I'm going to put in breaks. So I give them a chance to talk and it's a practice. So my suggestion to people is if you find things like that, just go, hey, it's something I, I would rather not do so much. It's not benefiting me. What could I do to make it a little better? Little simple thing like that. And this, this how we broke things down with narcissism, the difference between grandiose and vulnerable and you know, the personality traits that are involved in each one, that can help you pinpoint what you need to work on. So if you're more of a grandiose narcissist, you might need to tamp down the extroversion a bit, let other yeah. people have the limelight. If you're a vulnerable narcissist, I imagine the thing you got to tackle there is the neuroticism or the anxiety. Yes, it's the neuroticism. How do you do that? You know, exercise, meditation, yoga, you know, walks, SSRIs. You know, there's, there's things you do to try to get rid of that anxiety or depression in your life. That can be helpful that way. And then the, then the other key piece is that antagonism. And that could be practice of, you know, compassion. You know, there's compassion meditations you can do that, you know, treat everybody like they're your mother in the past life. I mean, that's an old one, but, but there are different practices that you can, you know, be nice to puppies, whatever it is, just find something and focus on that and see if you can make some headway that way. Yeah. Focus on other people, not you. Yes. Is the, the key. Yeah. And you got to be careful of the meditation. I've seen research lately saying that certain types of meditation can actually make you more narcissistic. That is really an interesting question because we have some, some research in ayahuasca that we've been looking at too. And I, I think there's a challenge in the meditation. It's the energy-based practices, which are kind of what I do. Some of the more energy-based yoga practices that are associated with narcissism, what happens is people have an enlightenment experience and they go, okay, I'm enlightened now. Well, I guess I'm a guru. I'm going to go get some followers. <laughs> so I don't think those practices are the best for grandiosity. I think they're good for vulnerability and neuroticism, but for grandiosity, they can be a real mixed bag and, you know, a lot of narcissistic gurus. Right. If you're grandiose, you want to do the loving kindness or the compassion. Loving kindness would meditation. be that's what your, I would suggest. That's the prescription. What about narcissistic personality disorder? I've read things that it's really hard to treat and sometimes it seems like it's impossible to treat. Is that is that true? It can be, but okay. So we don't have the gold standard clinical trial because it's never been done. But if you look across all the different clinical trials where they've looked at narcissism, and these aren't always perfect studies, what you find is that narcissists and narcissism can be changed. 
the big challenge is keeping people in therapy and getting people to therapy. But if people stick with it, it seems to be possible to change. So it's really a challenge of getting people in there and finding a therapist who can deal with people who are narcissistic. And this is a challenge and finding a therapy that fits the person. Okay. So we talked about reducing narcissism in yourself. How do you handle someone, if you have someone in your life who's a narcissist, whether that's a spouse, a boss, a friend, any tips there so you can keep maintain the relationship? It, it depends on how tied you are with the person and one, I, I guess, to, no matter what the relationship is, if you're dealing with somebody you think is really narcissistic, it's good to find some support, you know, find some other people that agree with you so that if you get in a conflict, the person can't, I mean, they'd use the term gaslighting, but basically people who are narcissistic, you know, it can make you think you're crazy. So you get some social support around you, take notes about things, get start understanding the situation in a, in a very stable and solid and secure way in case there's a conflict. And then you have to deal with whatever conflict comes up. So it could be you have a narcissistic boss that's stealing credit from you. And then you go, how do I handle this? Do I give them the credit and then try to get them promoted out? Do I try to get some of the credit? Do I try to get another boss? It just depends on what the situation is. But I'm like, get a support network first and get outside help if you can. Gotcha. Well, Keith, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, my website, wkeithcampbell.com. It's not great, but it's got some stuff. Book could be found anywhere. And I'm sometimes on Twitter at wkeithcampbell. All right. Well, Keith Campbell, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My guest today was W. Keith Campbell. He's the author of the book, The New Science of Narcissism. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, wkeithcampbell.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash narcissism, where you find links to resources where we can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles from over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to only listen to the A1 podcast, but put what you've heard into action.